Welcome to the Hidden Why podcast. This is episode 989, my interview with Andy Norman, and we're discussing his new book, Mental Immunity. I hope you enjoy. Andy, welcome to the Hidden Why podcast. Great to have you here today. Thank you, Lee. Nice to be here. And I'm not in San Francisco. <laughs> Despite appearances, huh? <laughs> Sunshine Coast. Yes, first time on the Zoom call, so pretty exciting to be using Zoom for um, the podcast interview. We'll see how this works, and it might become the new norm. Might even be able to start doing the uh, the videos on YouTube. Wouldn't that be good? There you go. I, I've got had no complaints with it. I can see you're a well-organized man with your bookshelf behind you. It looks very, very in order. Well, parts of my life are in order and other parts not so much. I, uh, <laughs> I'm glad I'm creating the, that impression, though. <laughs> That's the impression, isn't it? People would often think that about myself, that everything's in order. And then and, and we often think about that, you know, on other people that uh, externally, you know, through social media, we look at them and go, wow, everything's, you know, they just seem like they're all together. But we all yeah, have how come, our upsets. How come every... How come everybody else has it all together, right? Yeah, and, and right. I don't. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, that doubt. <laughs> but uh, mate, look, great, glad to have you here from um, Pennsylvania. Was it? That's right. Yeah, yeah. and 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 you you broadcast in uh, Australia, yeah, on the Sunshine Coast, Australia, in Queensland, state of Queensland. Very cool. I, I can't wait to visit your country. I hear it's beautiful there. It's lovely, and and the 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 mutualist feeling. I, I certainly want to get over there someday because. Um, it's a, it's a place that's got yeah, lots lots to see, I imagine. So you probably have to spend some time there. Uh, you can wait. You can waste a lot of time. I've wasted most most of my life here in the U.S. So yeah, come go. over anytime. Well, happy happy to show you ways to dissipate your life here. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> so, mate, tell us a bit about yourself, your background, what you do, and um, then I want to get into your book. You've just written a, a new book, Mental Immunity: uh, yeah. Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. I love this. It's a great topic. So. Thanks. Uh, yeah, so I'm a philosopher by training, and uh, way back as in college, uh, I was complaining about our species, sorry, lack of wisdom, and a friend of mine turned to me and said, well, quit complaining, Andy, do something about it. <laughs> so I declared my, my major as philosophy a few weeks later and been trying to figure out what wisdom is and how we can impart just a little bit more of it for much of my adult life. And I've discovered about two decades, three decades ago, that if you view the mind's operations through the lens of immunology, you start to see all kinds of interesting ways to enhance our capacity for reasoned judgment. Mm. Um, so it's pretty clear in our time that ideas can spread in a viral fashion. So I take that idea to its logical conclusion and say, bad ideas generally are mind parasites. And then the problem becomes, how do you inoculate minds? How do we strengthen our mind's resistance to bad ideas? And the answer is to strengthen the mind's immune system. Strengthen the mind's immune system. Yeah. Mm, you look skeptical. No, I'm just, I'm, I'm a kind of a deep thinker. So it's... Um... <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, and uh, philosophy, you know, certainly has served me well in, in recent years, um, something that I really enjoy, actually getting into philosophy. Right. Um, I can tell from the description of your podcast that you have a philosophical bent, and I love the premise of your The Hidden Why is, is a wonderful premise for a podcast. I think. Yeah, thank you. It's um, So the immunity of the mind for bad ideas. Yeah. I mean, are yeah. there bad ideas? Are there? 
Yeah. Well, if I said, uh, "Hey, reach into the campfire there and grab me one of those hot coals," it's a bad idea. You'd probably, you'd probably say that's a bad idea, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's an easy case, right? And then there are, of course, lots of political and religious and ethical ideas or ideas on very complex issues like immigration, where it's kind of hard to tell which ideas are good and which ideas are not so good. Yeah. But just, but, but if, but we need to get need to get past the idea that the question what is a good idea is is merely a matter for subjective opinion. We actually need to examine ideas and actually discern their objective properties and weed out the ones that are objectively problematic or objectively not serving us well. Is that and the first place it, to start then? I think so, yeah. Um, and, and that means overcoming this idea that it's all just subjective, right? That, every, that anybody anybody's idea about which ideas are good is just as good as anybody else's. That that idea isn't serving us well. And in, in the book, I actually argue that it's a what I call a mental immune disruptor. It prevents the mind from inquiring more deeply into what's really good and really bad, and thereby stunts moral development. Do you think that's part of the problem is that we, we don't think about these things too much? We're, we're exactly. too easily just jumping to what we want to believe or not believe that's or what a, that's we think big, is true or what's not true. I think that's right. We, we, uh, we're comfortable with the, for the most part, we're comfortable with the beliefs we already have. And when somebody comes along and say, Hey, I think that idea might deserve some examination and perhaps rethinking, we often get defensive. Right. Mm. And, and I think in, and at this moment in history, certainly here in the States, um, we leap to a very defensive posture very quickly and thereby uh, kind of dig our heels in and and it prevents us from having the kind of conversations that can really deepen and enrich our perspectives. And, and so that, that's one of the reasons why life feels very superficial, I think, to a lot of people today, because we're not having these conversations that, that really open our minds to the rich richness beneath the surface. Very, very much surface level people, beings. Well, and consumer culture doesn't help with that, right? I think it's a consumer culture and, you know, easy gratification through the internet or whatever makes it easy to kind of put your mind on autopilot and not think deeply about stuff. Yeah. But there's an, but there's an alternative, which is you can actually develop a taste for the kind of conversations that, really bind people over common values and that serves our our common need to feel like we belong and common need to feel like we matter mm. uh, and so as a philosopher i've been you know trying to cultivate those con those conversations among my students for a long time and also among my friends that'll be uh yeah very interesting role that you play there um do you think it's something we've lost more recently in years this this idea to or this not idea this this desire or need to have these deeper conversations? Or do you think it's something that's happened, you know, since Stoicism died, for example? Yeah, right. Uh, well, I mean, even Socrates in ancient Greece, even before the Stoics, hmm. you know, he was, he and his, his protege Plato were bemoaning the sort of lack of critical reflection of many of their fellow Athenians. So I, I think every age, the, the, the taste for deep thinking about values and right and wrong kind of waxes and wanes over the centuries. Uh, I do think there's something about our breakneck 
uh, internet connected culture that is leaves people feeling like there's no time for careful, deep reflection. And when you don't make time in your life for that, you end up starting to wonder what it's all about. And you end up starting to doubt that life really has meaning or purpose. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, very true too. And I reflect on that because I remember a point in my life where I was busy and working and got to this point where, what is this all about? You know, I had no, and and perhaps it was because I was missing that. And that's actually what started this podcast and, and my desire to research and read more about this sort of topic. And probably so what's led me to philosophy as well, because it's actually allowed me to have conversations that have meaning and then provide me in turn meaning. And so you can be a little test case here since you've made mm. time, more time in your life for these kind of conversations. Do you feel as though you found a, a sense of purpose or a richer sense of, uh, of mattering? I would say so. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, getting right. to speak to people like yourself every Friday, uh, it might be a couple of interviews every week, you know, um, allows me to have these conversations for half an hour, an hour, whatever it might be. It's almost a privilege, isn't it? I mean, not to say talking to me is a privilege, but being able to talk to people about things that really matter is a, well, it is. Is a it really is. neat thing. And, you know, I, I, I don't have a strict rule on who comes on the show or not, you know, um, and because I think everyone can have this sort of conversation and everyone can yeah. share something that's um, meaningful. And I certainly get that, you know, it's, it's not a podcast that makes me millions of dollars or has thousands and millions of viewers, <laughs> but it provides a deep and meaningful conversation to me and hopefully the, the person on the other end and also to the people that to choose to listen in. And I, for many, many years, felt fortunate to have, you know, captive audience of university students to, uh, with which to explore some of life's deepest questions. And so I, I've always felt that was a real privilege and uh, yeah. I got a, I got a lot out of it. I'm, I'm, I'd like to think that I, gave my students some things of value, but they certainly gave me a lot that, mm. that I'm not, that I'm grateful for. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> do you think, uh, I mean, do you think it became more one-sided rather than conversational? Um, you know, these, whatever topic we wanted to converse about it, it was just very much like, mm. I imagine religions very much, you know, the, the preacher pushing it down on, on the audience and not mm -hmm. too much feedback. Um, whereas mm -hmm. philosophy, for example, seems to be an open communication among all the individuals there and everyone can have their input and share their ideas. Yeah. And that contrast is, I think, uh, beautifully illustrated by what well, two of the most influential people in Western civilization are the Socrates. I just mentioned the Greek philosopher who's inspired millions of people to engage in critical dialogue and Jesus, who basically launched the world's biggest religion by preaching mm -hmm. and and of course, preaching and and asking questions to explore and test ideas are very different approaches to trying to educate people. And um, my, as you might imagine, my my sympathies lie more with Socrates than with Jesus. Just even though Jesus, I think, stood for some very interesting and important ideas as well. Mm. But going back to that idea of you know philosophy or religion giving you that sense of meaning, they certainly both achieve that because I speak to people who are religious. And, mm -hmm. and they do it because it gives them some sort of meaning or purpose. Yeah, I, I wish I'd had a better sense of how that worked within the religious mentality. I, I, uh, and I wonder, so, so one, one religious teaching that might have that effect is the idea that you say you're God's chosen people, or we are God's chosen people, mm -hmm. or the idea that God, that you are part of God's 
plan. Each of those ideas, I think, can convey a sense that you matter yeah. and thereby give you a sense of purpose. But I wonder to what extent that's just the illusion of purpose. Maybe it is. Well, I, I want to raise the question, I, and, and I want to hear from religious people about this, because may, they may understand aspects of this that I don't. Yeah. But, but, I, but I, I, it's hard for me to see how that confers genuine mattering as opposed to merely the appearance of it. Do you think through the, the idea that, yes, you matter, and then through the, the values that they teach, um, the morals they, they give, that people then take those on and, and reflect on them in an internal conversation at home, thereby providing some meaning internally to them, even though it's not a conversation as such between. That strikes me. That strikes me as a plausible, plausible hypothesis for sure. Um, you familiar with the uh, research by I think his name is Robert Putnam. He's a sociologist mm. here who discovered that religious people are are on average happier. Than, than non-believers, than secular people. Uh, but when you control for whether or not you belong to a community, the effect disappears. So it turns out that belonging to a religious community makes you happier, but being religious and not connected to a community gives you no happiness boost at all. Mm. And if you're secular, but belong to a community of of, I don't know, humanists or non-believers, that can confer just as much happiness as your average religious belonging does. That's that sense of belonging that's really playing the part there. Exactly. And and whether or not the metaphysical um, ideas of heaven and hell and God and the devil and all those things, whether those actually do any real work as far as helping people feel like they matter, uh, there's no, as far as I know, there's no concrete evidence that those add anything yeah. to the yeah. sense of belonging. <laughs> yeah, that sense of belonging, I mean, it's, it's critical, isn't it? And I, I certainly see in this age that we live, there's this massive disconnect with people and and uh, getting together and having conversations and socialising and um, it's huge. It's a big part and, and I'm, mm-hmm. you know, very much many people would think I'm an extrovert, but I'm very introverted as well. And so I have yeah. this shyness about me that has this hesitation about meeting with people, but I absolutely thrive on meeting with people and having yeah. social interaction. And, and I think everyone does, regardless of their nature. I agree. And I tell a story in the book that, that I think uh, communicates what we're talking about here in an interesting way. I was kind of shy and and anxious, socially anxious in high school. And, a, and a, a friend pulled me aside once and said, hey, Andy, why, why do you always walk around with this sorrowful look on your face? And I was like, I don't know, that's, that's just the way I am. And she said, well, try smiling. And I was like, well, but I don't have any reason to smile. And she says, stop being an idiot, smile anyway. <laughs> and so I tried, I, I just decided to give it a try. And I just start smiling at strangers in like my high school in the hallways, right between classes. And a strange thing happened. Some people started smiling back. Mm. And that completely changed my outlook on the world. It turned out I was sending, I was failing to send uh, welcoming signals with my facial expressions. And the world felt like a dark, unwelcoming place. I learned how to be preemptively welcoming with, with a smile. 
And all of a sudden it became much easier to make friends. And, and I feel like I'm a much happier, better adjusted person as a result. Yeah. And, and one thing that's interesting about this is that the advice I got from my friend smile anyway, is a lot like feeling despair, keep the faith. It's kind of a secular version of the, the advice remain resolutely hopeful, right? Keep the faith. Yeah. Keep, keep smiling anyway. These are all functionally similar ideas. Yeah. Keep gratitude going, even though you might have a, you know, a shit morning. Exactly. You know, stop being negative. This little injection of positivity and, and smile, even when things aren't going your way. Exactly. And, and I, I, uh, I ran a summer camp for kids for many years and I got a chance to impart the lesson to keep a positive attitude to these kids every, you know, every Monday, that was our focus. Yeah. Today, we're going to work on keeping a positive attitude. And, uh, and you know, it was really gratifying to see these kids, you know, kind of listen to my life lessons. Then we'd go out and apply it in the context of a team sport and team sports. And then the kids would go home and their parents would come back the next day and said, I don't know what you've done to my kid, but he's, he's, but we love it. Keep doing it, <laughs> you know? So I think this message, keep a positive attitude, it can smack of cheesy uh, self-helpy, you know, pop psychology, but I think there's something to it. And, and I think many people are too quick to dismiss the advice that keeping a positive attitude is, is one of the most important things you can do. Yeah. Well, I think there's, there's a level of any of these things that can be, you know, like this whole talk of being authentic. Um, It can be taken the wrong way. And if not done authentically, um, it can be wrong. So you can't just suddenly be positive and always be happy if you're not really being happy about the right things or positive about the right things. Cause I think, even you know, if you've had a negative experience, a good way to be positive is to reflect back on something that you're grateful for or reflect back on something yes. that you've achieved and yet you, you know, um, an accomplishment maybe. And yes. that's the positivity injection that's come from a real place. It's not just this hype positivity. That's not real. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And, you know, I, I went through a phase where I suffered from real depression and I learned later that I was just habitually obsessing about the negative aspects of things. And I wasn't making time in my life to just experience gratitude, to notice the good things, to stop and smell the flowers, things like mm. that. Mm. And when I, when I unlearned the habits of mind that had sent me down a depressive rabbit hole um, and learned again to pay attention to so many, so much of the beauty and and, jo- and joyfulness in life, you know, that changed, that changed me profoundly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why it seems so simple and, and um, yeah, very simple anyway. But, you know, if you're depressed or even slightly depressed or just having a down day, the couple of things that you can do is change your environment, you know, go for mm-hmm. a walk outside, go for a walk in nature, go for a swim, go for a run, go for a bike ride do some mm-hmm. form of movement and change the environment. And those yep. two very simple things alter where your mind's sitting at. Uh, so, yeah, exercise, I think, has a lot of uh, benefit in this regard from what I've seen in the studies. I, it's also, But even if you can't get out of your chair or out of your house, you can change what, you fo- what you're focusing your attention on, mm. right? So... At every moment of every day, there are multiple things we could be focusing on. And if you're ceaselessly dwelling on the negative or the worrisome or the reasons why it, why it's all going to hell in a handbasket, 
you know, you, you can render yourself depressed. Um, so it's not healthy to, to, uh, have a steady diet of depressing news. <laughs> no. Um, right. the, the news has some real serious psychological health, uh, effects. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm actually, I'm experimenting more and more with yeah. taking, going on fasts, news fasts, where I just abstain from news for a couple of days to regain my equilibrium. Yeah. I, I switched off the news, um, many years ago now. It was one of the first things I came across in self-development that everyone was switching off the news and I'm just like, huh? And I did it and yeah, profoundly, it had a big impact on on what I was consuming mind in my mind yeah. Yeah. and how that affected my behaviours. So you've actually traded in a habit of, of trying to keep up with the latest news for a habit of not consuming news but making time in your life for deep, slow conversations about things that matter. And perhaps that very exchange, oh, the substitution of the one for the others. Massive. Like you can pick up a podcast, like The Hidden Wire, for example, self-plug. The, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can pick up a podcast, which is what I did. I'd listen to podcasts instead. But I used to watch the news in the morning from whenever I got up and I didn't want to get up generally. And I'd watch the news. That would be on the background while I stuffed my face with whatever I could find, angrily going out to a job that I didn't love. Then I'd get home in the <laughs> afternoon with a few beers, turn on the news and watch news all night. You know, it's just very, very simple things that you, you may not think of at the time, but they weren't doing any good for my yeah. purposeful, meaningful life. Um, so by well, switching I, those things off and, and listening to a podcast while walking in the morning, yeah. it's a big, big change and makes a big difference. I hear you. Um, one of the tensions, one of the... Uh, tensions I explore in the book is that I think all of us feel as though we need to keep it, need to develop and maintain an accurate picture of reality. Hmm. So, and, and that's argues for watching the news, you know, being realistic, taking a real, trying to be as realistic as possible. Um, but of course we also, also have to remain optimistic and the kind of, and maintain the kind of attitude that allows us to be, have a positive impact on our world hmm. and not succumb to despair. And that can sometimes push in the other direction and say, yeah, turn down the news and turn up the music or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, So uh, I I think to remain constructive contributors to humanity's welfare, we have to be both reality-based and hopeful. And sometimes it can be hard to combine those things in the right way. There is a balancing act to it, and I... (laughs) Yeah, I suppose if you're watching news mindlessly and just getting it concerning you, and then I would think that if you're unable to do anything about it or not willing to do anything about what you're hearing on the news that upsets you, then mm. why are you watching it at all? Um, Fair point. And I don't think we need to tune out entirely of reality because I think we we all live in this reality, so we need to be aware of what's going on to be able to play any part in the solution and progress of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time you know, like what's on the normal news is stuff that I'll hear in conversation with someone out in the street. Now, would I be better off in sitting there for an hour at night or two hours at night or whatever it might be listening to news or maybe in the conversation the next day with someone picking up on a few things? Well, conversation would be a greater way to digest it, wouldn't it? I've certainly made my peace with the the, the exact same strategy you've just articulated, yeah. Yeah, it's been Um, coming across your path. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, if it's really important, it'll probably find its way to your ears, even if you don't devote hours to taking in the news or 
scrolling through Twitter or Facebook, right? Now, this is all also very um, subconsciously absorbed, I would assume, and, and it's affecting us on an unconscious level, the stuff that mm-hmm. we digest. And if we go back to someone who attends church, you know, on a Sunday, and they take mm-hmm. in all this information uh, and wisdom shared from the, the teacher, and unconsciously it must be having a, a role in their life, would you think? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I have some wonderful friends who are deeply religious and, you know, they say they bring home things from their Sunday services that, that serve them well through the week. Mm. It means a lot to them. And, um, you know, I'm prepared to accept their testimony at, at face value. Like if it works for them, fine, provided it doesn't have side effects that harm others. Right. Mm. Yeah. True. And in the book, I, I do argue that, uh, it's not okay to indulge in the psychological, it's not okay to indulge in wishful faith-based believing for your private psychological benefits if in the process you're having side effects that affect, that, that harm others. No. So um, we, we know this about the world that when, when people form faith-based communities, they often have trouble dialoguing with people from other faith-based faith-based communities, right? It's, it can be hard to to reach consensus when you're di- when you're trying to dialogue across religious divides. And I think the main reason for that is that faith-based systems often fix on things that are rationally arbitrary, and then and decide to cling to them. And if you follow that path you're contributing to a kind of tribalism that makes it harder for humanity to work out its differences through constructive dialogue. Um, and, and so I worry that many reli- forms of religious faith benefit the believer themselves at a net cost to our overall, to humanity more generally. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm digesting it. It's um, yeah, and again, it becomes from that it's very one-sided. This is this is how our religion is. This is what we have to believe, and this is why. And you don't have that ability to question things necessarily. Right. And 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 when a religion teaches you that it's okay to brush aside questions by saying that's just a matter of faith for me, I don't have to question that. You're actually providing sort of a, and the, the, the faith-based tradition is actually providing an excuse for closed-mindedness. And we know that closed-mindedness results in harm. And so I, 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 in the book, I distinguished between two kinds of faith. There's the kind of faith that basically says, look, there are pro-social attitudes like hopefulness and trust that are really worth promoting. And, and insofar as a faith-based tradition functions to promote those things, that's that's a net plus for, for us all, I think. But when the concept of faith becomes an excuse for dogmat, dogmatism or just stubborn uh, tenacity about one set of beliefs over, over another, then it becomes a net harm mm. for humanity. And, and you can't, and it's hard to claim the moral high ground if, if that's the kind of faith that you've bought into. Yeah. What, what do you think the purpose is of, of religion, for example? Yeah. Um, so I, 
subscribe to a, a concept of religion that was articulated by a psychologist named William James back at the, in the early part of the 20th century. He actually argued that religions are essentially sophisticated ways to kind of hack a mind's attitudes. So, so what religions may offer many claims about, you know, God and, and the nature of the cosmos and reality, but ultimately religious beliefs pay their way by inducing desirable attitudes. They're, they're basically kind of, they're like um, positive psychology or self-help books in that they try to adjust attitudes in ways that benefit people. That's what religions are functionally about. But well, often if we can, they, if, we can ben, if we can change the psychology of, of one person in a positive way, hopefully then if that is then communal, that'll help everyone as a mass. That, that's right. And, and when, in fact, I think religions are kind of culturally evolved institutions that bind people together around shared values and reinforce constructive psychological and social attitudes uh, in a communal way, which makes it even more powerful. Mm. Um, and I think it's important that if we want to understand religion in a way that's intellectually honest, we need to understand it as functionally useful, but not always true. Yeah. 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 Um, so that, so that, so, so in, in chapter six of my book, I explore this famous debate between the psychologist, William James, who defends religion uh, and a physicist named um, W.K. Clifford, uh, a, a British guy from the 1870s, who basically argues that faith is, is, a, is ethically, is, is an unethical indulgence in belief that can't withstand, that can't meet basic evidential standards. So, so this, this young brash physicist basically says faith is immoral. And this eminent Harvard psychologist comes back 20 years later and says, um, you're missing the big picture here, Clifford. Um, religions actually function to benefit us by inducing desirable attitudes. And you can't just prohibit all desirable attitudes with your evidence, your, your evidential standards. So, so imagine we took the idea, you're only allowed to believe evidence-based things. Imagine taking that so seriously that you're not allowed even to say, to wake up in the morning and just say to yourself. Um, Today's going to be a great day. Today's going to be a great day because you don't have any evidence yet that it is. Hmm. Right. That would be a, that seems to indicate that uh, always have enough evidence for your belief standard it could could become dysfunctional in ways that harm us inadvertently. Mm. All right. So on the one hand, you have the kind of a scientific based evidence based standard for good idea. And on the other, you have a religious based idea that that our ideas are good because of their causal effects, not just their evidential basis. Mm. And I argue in the book that both traditions have a piece of the truth that that what makes ideas good or bad is both the upstream evidence and the downstream consequences. Yeah, that's a very good take on it. I like it. What about philosophy then? What is the purpose of philosophy as opposed to what we just discussed about religion? 
if there is yeah. any difference. So I'll let me contrast philosophy with science because that's what I've, I guess I have a clearer answer to that in mind. So what we know today is the sciences were once the domain of philosophy. It was called natural philosophy. And then linguistics, psychology, physics, biology, these are all branched off. They all split off from natural philosophy or philosophy proper. Um, and many people wonder if there's even any role left for philosophers now that the scientists are answering questions that once belonged to its domain. And on this view, philosophy will eventually just be replaced by science. Um, it's a view that I think philosophers need to take seriously, but here's my considered view. Um, we've pat, so philosophers have always been into idea testing, but we have for the most part focused on conversational idea testing. In the early part of the scientific revolution, we developed this idea of performing experiments or using observation to test ideas. And that became kind of a separate branch of idea testing and it, and it branched off and became the natural sciences. Mm. Um, but philosophers have hung on to their core job, which is to test value judgments and to run consistency checks. So one way to test an idea is just to see if it, it's consistent with other things you know. You can do that in the in the idea lab, yeah. the idea testing lab you have between your ears. You don't need a, a lab coat or a physical laboratory to do that. So philosophers have hung on to that kind of idea testing. And there's still a very important role for that because a lot of times when you do that, you discover that you've placed too much confidence in something you thought you knew. <laughs> mm. Right. And then yeah. it's important to dial down your confidence level and that's one one of the ways we all need to grow. Yeah. Do you um, do you think it, it plays a part in giving people meaning or, or becoming better citizens, as like religion tries to attempt to do, whether it's truth or or, or evidence based? Nice question. Um, yeah, I, I I certainly feel as though my philosophical explorations give me a sense of, they've helped me gain an understanding of why I matter to some degree. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I guess I would say that philosophy and religion have sort of offered competing approaches to finding meaning for a long, long time. And, and making uh, an individual a better person. Yeah, they're both concerned with, it, the with uh, making us better people. Yeah, Better people, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So how do we um, go about um, immunity in the mind, I suppose? Yeah. Where do we start then? Other than what we've had right now is a good conversation and asking questions. Mm -hmm. I assume that's a part of it, but. Yeah. So uh, I, I love the my practical friends who want to get to this question, you know, right away. So we philosophers like to clarify, clarify, clarify. And my practical friends say, yeah, tell me what to do, right? Yeah, tell, me yeah. how, tell, tell, me, tell me how I can put this into action. Uh, in the book, I joke that my wife calls me a flaming clarifier, and I respond that she's a flaming implementer because <laughs> uh, she's really good at getting stuff done. Um, so 
to the practically minded implementers out there, um, here's some lessons from the new science of mental immunity that might help you develop and deepen your own immunity to bad ideas yep. while also help, helping those around you. Um, number one, uh, listen to your doubts. Uh, your doubts are actually your mind's antibodies. And they're actually trying to f tell you something. When you encounter a new idea or some new information, listen closely to that little voice in the back of your head that might just be saying, something's off here. Because, And if you zoom in on that concern, on that doubt, a lot of times you'll see that the idea or information in question has a problematic features that it's best not to ignore. So ignore your doubts and your mind's immune system gets weaker. Pay attention to your doubts and your sensitivity to bad ideas can, can increase. Um, second thing, understand that the challenges to your worldview aren't threats. They're opportunities to learn. Mm. So when somebody raises an objection to something you're passionate about, Try to fight down the urge to, you know, to issue a biting reply or to get defensive. Instead, um, remind yourself that, you know, you, you might very well learn something by hearing this person out and really understanding where their, where their challenge is coming from. Yeah. Um, the reason why this piece of advice is so important is that our mental immune systems can overreact to information we perceive as threatening. So if I'm a devout Christian and somebody, I'm sorry, if you're a devout Christian and somebody like me comes along and raises questions about Christianity, you might very well feel attacked. That's your mind's immune system um, throwing up barriers to what I have to say because it seems like it's an attack on you. Yeah. So one, one way to keep your mind's immune system from overreacting and basically attacking uh, challenging information is to try not to hitch your identity to any of your beliefs. Yeah. When you let your beliefs define you, you're setting yourself up for mental immune failure, or, or at least part, or you're at least partially compromising mental immune function because you're likely to get defensive and thereby miss opportunities to learn. Hmm. That make, does that make sense? That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Got, got a few more here. Should I keep going? Yeah, keep going. I'm loving it. All right. Um, I, I guess this connects with the last one. You're, remember that you, you are not your beliefs. Your beliefs are not you, and they don't have to define you. Um, think of your If you regard your beliefs as sort of precious heirlooms, and somebody comes along with really interesting, challenging philosophical questions, you're likely to feel threatened again. Instead, view your beliefs as like house guests that might be fine to entertain for a while. You know, yeah, you, you, you're, these beliefs are serving me well. They can stick around, but they'll eventually wear out their welcome when you start to explore edge cases where those beliefs don't serve you particularly well. Mm. And, and when that happens, you need to be ready to let go of those beliefs so that they can be replaced by even more fine-tuned or, or even more adaptive, more optimized beliefs. Does that make sense? So sort of lose, don't attach to the beliefs. Yeah. There, and, there you and go. Don't, don't treat them like they're a possession. 
Right. Or at least treat them as a possession you're happy to part with when, <laughs> when the time comes, when they're. Yeah. Exactly. I like your way of putting it better, actually. Well, Let's I don't know. With... I'm just, I mean, philosophy that I've read a lot about is the, you know, they talk about this whole idea of possessions and how that we don't own anything. So why get angry about something that we don't own that's taken away from us? And I was talking to somebody the other day who said he became very wealthy at one point in his life and he ended up feeling as though his possessions owned him. He worried so much about keeping his stuff that he felt uh, basically trapped by it. Mm. And it made him wonder whether we own our possessions or whether our possessions own us. I thought Absolutely. that was an interesting, Absolutely. interesting take, right? But that's interesting about the beliefs too, because I, I feel that the one thing that we can have some sort of level of, of ownership on is the mind. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily our beliefs, does it, even though they preside maybe in the mind. I'm not sure if that's mm-hmm. correct or not, but... Yeah, I would say so. Belief is um, a, a visitor to the mind, like you said, a guest. Yeah, it's... Um, I mean, I have beliefs too, and but I try to remind myself that... Um, but you've probably had guests on who talk about meditation and how meditation works. When you practice the art of mindfulness meditation, you learn to treat the ideas that just kind of volunteer themselves and intrude on your quiet time as something that you don't have to focus on. You train your mind to just let them float away. Yeah. Um, and when you do that, you start to realize that you don't have to let the the habitual habits of mind define you. You can actually exercise conscious control over whether you're going to succumb to those habits in the next moment, or whether you're just going to let those habits uh, let go of those habits and focus afresh on something else or just, or even empty your mind entirely. Mm. So, so the practice of mindfulness meditation introduces a gap between you and your thoughts. And that gap frees you from the tyranny of the of habitual thoughts in the exact same way this um idea that uh beliefs are house guests Mm, that might wear out their welcome that idea i think can introduce a gap between you and your beliefs so that your beliefs don't uh take authority don't enslave you yeah enslave you and that's a really good point. And I guess that's, you know, a part of something that anyone can do is, is just have a mindfulness practice to allow that because I think that's certainly something that's allowed me to detach from a lot of things that I've attached to in life and yeah, not I've letting the possessions or, or beliefs, you know, rule. And, and I've, I've experimented, dabbled in, in meditation you know, for many years, but I'm certainly no virtuoso at it and there, I, I can't, go very long before, you know, I can't keep a empty mind for very long. Right. Mm. Uh, when I practice more often, I, I get better at it, but, uh, but it does rem- help to remind me that I don't have to go where my thoughts habitually try to drag me. I can basically say, no, I'm going to focus on something else. I'm going to go over there and smell the flowers. I'm going to go for a walk in the woods or, or whatever. Absolutely. It's um. <laughs> Yeah, that whole the whole piece of detachment from your possessions or yeah, your beliefs is um, phenomenal. I guess in this, you know, I'm just thinking about it because I think the, looking at your your car or your phone or your house or whatever you own as a possession, just as much as a belief, there's this, there's a crossover there. And yesterday, someone said to me because we just recently purchased uh, a house, 
And they said, oh, you should be very proud. You know, you've got a new house. And I said, well, not really. I said, it's a house. And I was, I was more happy that we didn't have the inconvenience of having to move, to be honest, than anything else. Um, but, yeah, it's a nice home and I'm, I am grateful for it. But I didn't have this or, or maybe I just didn't want this level of attachment to it. Um, that's, yeah, that's probably healthy to, to, cause that, to just. Because it could easily be taken from us too. Um, yeah. And then therefore it will be without, you know, and previously I was without because I didn't previously own it. So it's there's a, not really a big a, difference. A home is the kind of possession that can provide a, a lot of sense of security and rootedness, right? So mm. that, that's, a, that's a tough case. I certainly, I'm awfully attached to my home and uh, were it taken away, I, you know, I, I wouldn't fall far short of what the great spiritual masters preach in the way of non-attachment, I'm sure, right? I'm sure I would rage. <laughs> oh, about no it. doubt, no doubt, but I'm sure you'd still find a house and, and have some sort of security that can provide you that comfort and, yeah. and hopefully be content with that. But what I'm, what I'm so. sort of thinking here is that our culture um, is so values these things so much, this idea of owning things and owning a bigger house and a bigger car and a bigger diamond, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And it seems that our culture now is, is really proud of owning these beliefs, which is why this tribalism, you know, us versus them yes. is so significant. Yeah, so it seems to me that in a highly materialistic ownership-based culture, people just naturally compete to own more stuff. Mm. What was it? Ted, Ted Turner, the media mogul once said, uh, life is a game and money is how you keep score. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I beg to differ, right? Uh, that's mm. one way you can choose to understand the game of life, but I, it's certainly not the only one. Um, what if instead of competing to be richer than everybody else around us, which ultimately proves to be kind of an empty and, and uh, soul-sapping journey. What if instead we didn't so much compete at becoming wiser, but actually helped each other become wiser? All, we all became, tried to become wiser together by helping each other get there. Mm. Wouldn't that be a far more satisfying and gratifying um, game to play, right? Yeah. What, what, what if we could wave a magic wand and get billions of people around the world to say, you know what, I want to play that game instead. Um, I think we could wouldn't it? It'd be a game changer, that's for sure. I, I think so. Because you're right, we, we compete to own more and, and outdo our neighbours, you know, with our possessions. And with our beliefs, we're doing exactly the same now. We want to be more right than the next person, you know. We want to have the stronger team than the next person. And, and I got to tell you, the, the world of professional philosophy that I marinated in for a long, long time, you know, contains a lot of really sharp people who are very competitive and they compete by trying to show that their ideas are the best and that, that your ideas aren't as good as theirs. <laughs> and so even, even the, the art of, of conversation can become highly competitive. Yeah. And, and when and professional philosophers learn they develop thick skin in, in this thing. When, when the people you surround yourself with are testing your ideas with really tough questions, you, you, you quickly learn not to identify with your ideas. You, you learn that they are not you. You try out ideas, but you, you part with them quickly if, if, they, 
if they prove not to be worthwhile and you don't and you learn not to take it personally right your ideas may be mm. sketchy from time to time but that doesn't mean you're a bad person you must um, learn we, very quickly how to be humble and vulnerable too otherwise you're not <laughs> going to be sitting there for too long because man how often would my beliefs be incorrect and how often have i changed my beliefs every day um, yeah i mean it's, it's, Socrates, who I keep mentioning because he's one of my heroes, uh, arguably the pa patron saint of philosophy, would always raise the, the kind of brilliant questions that leave people wondering if they really knew what they thought they knew. In other words, he would ask questions that humbled them. So the one thing he would leave people with, he very seldom leave the people he talked with with definitive answers, but he'd always leave them more humble. Mm. Or, or outraged that he had humbled them, which is why they made him drink hemlock, right? <laughs> That's nice. But I, think, but I think humility is important, right? And, and to be, I mean, uh, Plato, Socrates, uh, protege basically said, until we become humble, you can't make real headway towards wisdom and unless you become humble about your own worldview first. Because you just don't have the motivation to learn if That's you're true. if you're not humble first. Yeah, I love it, mate. Awesome conversation. Yeah. Um, Thanks, I'm enjoying it. We've got a um, a book there that you've released, um, which is on Amazon Mental Immunity. So I'm going to stick a link in the show notes for our guests. What? Uh, how can people reach out to you best, Andy? Yeah, it's, so I have a website where they can learn more about the book and and my work, uh, AndyNorman.org. Yeah. Um, I'm also kind of documenting this uh, amazing journey I'm on uh, uh, promoting the book on my Facebook author page. So uh, Andy Norman author on Facebook is one way to learn a whole lot more about mental immunity and in little bite-sized chunks. Uh, but don't let that deter you from uh, buying the book out there. Uh, you'll find that it treats these issues in much more care and more detail. Yeah. I can see it's going to be a yeah, a very deep book and, and a lot to absorb, um, hopefully with the practical aspects too for people to to take away and be able to action. Um, and it brings me back to a point you were saying before how your wife seems to be very, very good at executing things and doing, whereas you think about things more perhaps. But I, I sort of wonder, I think maybe <laughs> if we all spend a little bit more time planning and thinking uh, and less time doing, how much greater our lives could be because I I one of those people that I'm very good at taking action to um, and I probably took too much action and it wasn't to a point where I started going slow down plan a bit more mm. that I actually didn't have to take all the action I was taking because I was doing a lot of the unnecessary and so it's, I, I love enjoyable. this story mm. yeah and I I, I think uh, and that's music to my philosophical ears I, I tell a story in the book of uh, I, I was once in an ice cream shop and a guy sitting there waiting in line had a t-shirt with big brown letters that said, get shit done. And I kind of caught his eye and shook my head and he said, what? And I said, you really believe that? And I pointed to his shirt and he, he looked down and he said, well, yeah, why? I said, do you think it's a good idea to, to uh, urge people to do random shit? And he was like, well, maybe not random shit or, you know, any arbitrary shit. So we had this lovely little conversation. And by the time we were done, he seemed inclined, inclined to retire the T-shirt. And so I'd end up defining flaming 
clarifiers like myself as people too busy clarifying to get any shit done and flaming implementers like Heidi as people who are too busy getting shit done to worry, to wonder whether the shit they're doing is really worth doing. Right. <laughs> and I say, there's got to be a happy medium. between. Oh, absolutely. Them, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that story. <laughs> I wonder how long he took to choose his ice cream. <laughs> Fine question. I wasn't paying attention, I'm afraid, but <laughs> good. good test. All right, Andy, lovely to have you and thank you for the brilliant conversation, andynorman.org. So the link will be in the show notes for everyone listening. Andy, any final words? No, it's been a pleasure, Lee. Thanks for having me and uh, I hope uh, to look you up if I'm ever down under. Absolutely, please do. Guys, check it out at thehiddenway.com. Until next time, peace, passion and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwide.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is lee martin until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon